Welcome to the Happy Startup School Community Podcast. Uh, just back from Altitude, Altitude 2019. It's our leadership retreat that we host in the French Alps. Um, I'm actually now a little bit high <laughs> on uh, painkillers. Um, during that trip, I didn't sleep as well as I'd like to. I don't think it was the bed but I'm just just kind of uh, experiencing really bad back pain. Nothing that a bit of ibuprofen and some other muscle relaxants can't cure, but it also means I am feeling very, very relaxed. (laughs) Anyway, uh, onto the podcast. Um, So on this podcast, I'm talking to Casper to Kyle. Uh, He's one of the authors of the How We Gather Report, which is an an exploration into how millennials are finding and building communities of meaning and belonging. He's also the co-host of the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which itself has grown into a community and a business in its own right. During our conversation, we discuss what community means to Casper and how our need for belonging in the modern age is being met by different secular organisations, and also how it affects, or how I think it can affect the way we work, and how we gather together uh, in the work that we do. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. So I just let that drift onto the background, but um, uh, how are you? I'm doing all right. It's a Monday. Um, I was writing over the weekend and I should have had more time outside because I'm now looking out the window thinking, oh, um, but uh, no, all, all is well, all is well. <laughs> and is this writing for a book? Or yeah. A- yeah. I've got a book coming out next year. So I'm just working on the hopefully the draft that is accepted by the publisher and then from them we go into kind of copy edits um so yeah it's exciting but also uh yeah you know just it's scary (laughs) (laughs) you want it to be good and how will it be good yeah yeah (laughs) and is this is this a first book a second book it is oh no no this is yeah this is book number one so just at the beginning Yeah. And what inspired you to write this book? Is this like a collection of things that you've been carrying with you for a while or Yeah. Is it a bucket list project? Yeah, well I was I was um in some ways I was very very lucky because a, a publisher kind of said, like, would you want to write something that brought together your work on how we gather and Harry Potter and the sacred text? And I was like, Oh my god, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. So um yeah, it's kind of been bringing together the the kind of big big two projects I've been working on over the last five years and what I've learned from them. And um, yeah, it's, it's very much centered on, uh, you know, in a time of social isolation and, and mental health crises, how do, how do we live lives of, of deep connection, connecting to ourselves, one another, the natural world and the transcendent. So that's the goal. <laughs> um, nice. I yeah. like it. Yeah. So um, as we've just drifted into this, which I quite like, I enjoy it rather than having to have some big entry, it would be... I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the podcast uh, and the Harry Potter and Sacred Texts. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I haven't actually 
listened to it or got into yeah, it. So no stress. as much for my benefit as to the listeners, it'd be nice to hear about what that's about, uh, as well as um, kind of what you're up to at the moment, which is, of course, is writing the book and maybe if there's anything else you want to include. Yeah. And then how you got to here in whichever way you'd like to express that. <laughs> Um, sure. Well, <laughs> I can talk for an hour there. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll just a kind of a bit of a, a brief background. So I, I grew up in England, uh, but both my parents are Dutch. Um, and I think we were relatively normal in the sense that, um, you know, I didn't grow up with any sort of religious identity. You know, Britain is such a secular country, Holland even more so perhaps, um, as compared to the US where there's just a lot more religiousness in, in the public culture. Um, and so I didn't know anyone who went to church, really, let alone synagogue or mosque. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, kind of God was just a very, very foreign word. So I, I grew up in a pretty secular childhood, but um, went to a Waldorf school or a Steiner school, which looking back now, I see all of this ritual and this strong community and these traditions and, and um, very creative, very nature based and very focused on the holistic development of the child, which included a sense of spirituality without it ever really being named overtly and certainly not shaped in a way that ever felt oppressive. Um, and, but I, I look back now and I see how much that thread has kind of continued in my life. Um, but I ended up uh, studying history and sociology uh, at university, but spent most of my time uh, being an activist on climate change. Um, so I spent a lot of time kind of mobilizing young people around the United Nations um, negotiations on climate change and had kind of that moment where you know, many activists will describe that sense of burnout or that moment where it just felt too much or I didn't, I didn't believe anymore in the strategies we were using. And I was kind of lost, like I didn't know what else to do. You know, I'd worked for nonprofits and kind of done all the, you know, policy advocacy and, and, and um, mobilizations and, and some direct action and was just really um, just kind of lost, lost faith in, in what we were doing. Um, and so what do you do when you don't know what to do? You go to graduate school. <laughs> and <laughs> I ended up in the U.S. to do a public policy degree, um, which which I did and really enjoyed. But what was much more interesting while I was there was meeting people from the Divinity School. Um, and I hadn't even heard about the Divinity School, let alone thought about going. And I, I thought it was just for Catholic priests or something. I had no idea. Um, and it turns out that Divinity School here in the U.S. is a very much broader exploration of culture and meaning and community and ritual and singing and justice, like all of these big questions that I was interested in that the public mm. policy program kind of never really got into. Um, and so I loved learning from, you know, people who, who were able to teach me about things that I already had an innate sense of, but didn't know what to do with, you know? So mm. for example, with, when I've been working with young activists, I always wanted people to sing together. And now there was this whole body of work, you know, going back across centuries of why is it powerful to get groups to sing together? You know, um, that it's that it's a source of sustenance. It's a great conflict resolution tool. It's a way of building an identity without giving language to it when language can be divisive. Um, all, all of these, all of these things that I, I had a sense of, but didn't know how to talk about or, or do kind of with some expertise. So I loved being in the Divinity School. And specifically, I was very lucky enough to have two, uh, two women that I met who've become real kind of collaborators uh, in, in key projects of mine. Um, so one is a woman called Vanessa Zoltan, who was writing her thesis on reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text. 
Um, Vanessa came from a, a very atheistic Jewish family um, and so had kind of rejected um, post-Holocaust uh, uh, an idea of God, you know, that she would say God died in the camps. Um, she mm. had four, four grandparents who all survived the Holocaust. So it was a very strong uh, element of her upbringing. But nonetheless, she she loved literature and kind of wanted to learn about how do you treat a text as sacred? Um, and a wonderful mentor of ours, Stephanie Purcell, said, okay, great, well, let's read it with, with Jane Eyre. And so Vanessa started running a little group. Uh, and every Wednesday night, three women would come and they would read a chapter of Jane Eyre and talk about what it meant to their lives and what kind of big life questions it brought up. And being a good friend, I went along to one of them and was like, wow, this is great. You know, I dutifully read my one chapter of Jane Eyre. Um, and then I came away from it. I said, Vanessa, this is cool, but why don't we do it with a book that people have actually read? <laughs> and let's do it with <laughs> Harry Potter, um, which it, which sounds like a very commercial decision, which it was. But uh, I had also been really interested in how kind of epic stories like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or um, especially Harry Potter uh, felt much more like my text rather than a, a, a you know a traditional sacred text like the Bible, which I was studying in school, but uh, always felt foreign to me because I wasn't raised with it. It didn't feel like mine in how I could interpret it. While something like Harry Potter that I'd grown up with, I felt very comfortable making claims about what it might have to say about my life. And so mm. um, we ran it as an in-person group for for nine months and then had such an astonishing reaction that we thought, let's turn this into a podcast. And so what we do on the podcast every week um, is to take one chapter of the books and we, we've just finished book five. So we've been going for three years. Uh, we wow. take one chapter, we read it through a theme, a theme like forgiveness or um, justice or um, despair or love. Um, and we look what the text might have to teach us about that theme. Um, but it's not just talking about it in the abstract. It's using specific traditional sacred reading practices from Judaism and Christianity to kind of extract that meaning from the text. So um, one of the, 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 the ones which is my favorite practice is called Lectio Divina, which just means sacred reading uh, in Latin. And this was a monastic practice whereby uh, monks would take one specific line of text and ask, uh, you know, we kind of translate how these questions work, but it, it, it comes from this wonderful Carthusian monk from the 13th, 12th century called Guijo II. And he wrote this lovely little pamphlet called The Ladder of Monks. And he imagined that with each question, you kind of climbed this ladder towards the divine. So the first question is to ask kind of what's going on in the text narratively, you know, the, the way you would read it as a story. Then to ask the question, um, okay, what allegorical meaning can we find here? Does it remind us of songs or images or stories um, uh, that we know? And then to ask, what is the text reminding us of in our own life? So are there experiences that I've had that really resonate with this text? And then finally, Guido would have asked, Guido would have asked, um, what is God asking you to do through this text? The way we ask that question is, what is the text asking you to do? And so it might mm. be something, you know, I really need to think about um, forgiving a friend of mine who I've been holding the scrudge against. Or it might be like, I should really call my sister. Or, you know, it, it leads to all sorts of unexpected um, actions. But the, the idea is that we look into the text as a mirror and that we see something new about ourselves. Um, so I just, I love that practice. And it's been a lot of fun mm. to do in this podcast. And we've, you know, now got kind of tens of thousands of people uh, who listen around the world and, and we go on live, like do tours of live shows and all sorts of fun things. Wow. <laughs> so it's, and it's turned into a business, you know, we've got four full-time staff and four part-time staff working on it now and two spin-off podcasts and we're doing secular pilgrimages and, um, you know, Vanessa's really turned it into an amazing business and, 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 and a community of listeners and people participating in these ancient practices. So that's been a lot of fun. 
Um, so that's kind of been one big project. And, and then the second project is a project called How We Gather. Um, and this was uh, together with my friend and classmate, Angie Thurston. Um, and Angie comes from a, a, a creative writing background. She was a, a playwright. And uh, she and I were both really interested in this phenomenon of people our age, millennials, who in the US uh, were unaffiliated, so didn't have a religious kind of box to tick, as it were, but nonetheless were finding and building communities of real meaning and belonging. Um, and so she and I started to just interview people and look at where people were going uh, to, to find connection and um, wrote a little paper called How We Gather, um, which profiled organizations like CrossFit and SoulCycle and Makerspaces and um, groups that got together over dinner to talk about grief, um, justice groups, all of these things that were not at all religious, but were nonetheless doing things that you would expect to happen in a religious congregation. So getting married, getting, uh, you know, having, having funerals there, um, seeking kind of pastoral support when you're going through a divorce or you've been diagnosed with cancer, um, having these kind of really meaningful experiences that traditionally would have happened within religious spaces or, or processes that were now in these secular places. And, and the people who were leading these communities were often fulfilling the role of a religious leader, even if they never thought about it. You know, your yoga teacher kind of doing a little mini sermon, perhaps during a practice or, um, you know, people leading one another on, on, on uh, physical journeys that were really about transformation. Um, so uh, we started to, to kind of map that landscape and convene and bring together leaders of those communities. And uh, that's, that was four years ago now. Um, and so we've mm -hmm. really spent the last four years kind of naming and framing this phenomenon, connecting and convening these leaders uh, and others who care about what's going on, and then starting to build our own kind of experiments and, and now starting to consult with other organizations who are interested in learning about that. So that was a very, very long answer to your question, um, <laughs> but I hope gives you some sense of the flavor of the work I've been doing. No, that's, that's perfect. I think that it's, it's I think it's, it, it's the thread that I seem, I hear there's purpose for yourself is, seems to be very core to what you're doing. And then I heard earlier on with the activism I uh, said so there's sense of purpose, but then something around practically making that happen or mm. there's something that just didn't work well there. And then there's this journey of learning mm. uh, that then brought these interesting connections that then took you on you know, this other kind of a deeper, as I understand it, kind of a deeper exploration as to where this kind of meaning and purpose comes from. Uh, and part of that is is through community. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I'm um, I'm intrigued. So I think one of the the questions I'm curious about because I hear this uh, different definitions of of the word community uh, banded around these days. Uh, I'm curious how you know what your take on it is. Yeah, that's a that's a really important question because we've um, I've become very suspicious of especially brands using that word community when often they're not really describing community, they might be describing a network or, or you know, a looser connection. For me, community is really a, a group of people where you are known and you are loved. Um, and, and those two things go together. Uh, this comes from a mentor of ours, Killian No, who runs something called the Recovery Cafe in Seattle, uh, where she works with, with people who are um, uh, either homeless uh, or, or housing insecure a lot of people who are um, struggling with addiction and in recovery. 
Um, and she talks about, you know, a lot of people are um, known without being loved, especially if you're at the margins of society and you're in all sorts of databases and, and you know, social services are trying to support you. Like every part of your life is known, but none of those interactions are really founded on love. And on the other hand, you know, for those of us who might have um, a lot of opportunities, a lot of privilege, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, love that is sent our way, but are we really known? And that feels then very shallow uh, and, and very insincere. And so a community is a place which, if not, at least should be striving for uh, that experience of being deeply known and, and, and deeply loved. Um, and I, that's really not to say that something like a network or, you know, if you if you have a, an amazing retreat or you do a weekend away with people and you have this real bond and a real connection, that's awesome. Um, but to me, that's not necessarily a community, you know, that, that, that is a, or at least it's a temporal community for those two, three days, you know, you have that intense experience. Um, but, but a community is people where you can call them at 2am and, and, and know that someone's going to pick up and help or where you know each other's children, you know, or um, there's, there's just an embeddedness and, and entwinedness that I think is so important. Um, and often that's facilitated by being place-based, but it doesn't have to be. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a depth to the word community that I'm very kind of protective about that sometimes feels um, uh, maybe a little cheapened uh, when people walk into a room and five minutes later, someone says, well, in this community, <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 hmm. no, no. <laughs> yeah. And no, I think there's, there's this use of the community, which just sounds like a, a, a group of people. That's right. Um, and I, um, and I appreciate the kind of trying to find a, a more meaningful or having this more meaningful definition of that, that word. And it it comes, I I think people, sorry, Carlos, but I I think people are reaching for that word because there's such an absence of it. You know, so I, I, I I totally understand why we're grasping for that language because so many of us feel so isolated, you know, Um, over the last year, my my colleague Angie moved away from, from, uh, from Boston. And so I've been working on my own for this last year and it's been quite lonely um, I've just I've just noticed working from home or working from the office on my own, just how how easily if some of those primary core relationships um, transition, right? It might be a breakup of a relationship or the death of a loved one or someone moves away. It's very easy to suddenly look around your life and be like, God, it's actually quite isolating. You know, so so many of us today feel that, um, and it has a you know big impact on our mental health and our physical health and our a sense of meaning. So I, I understand where that instinct comes from, that we, we want that community. But I, I, I yeah, as I said, I, I think it's important to hold it up a little bit on a pedestal so that when we really have it, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we're going to protect and we're going to really kind of fight to keep. No, it's interesting that I think there's, there's this, well, this, um, how we've evolved as uh collections of people we, we, we I, i'm i'm trying to scrabble for the words here but hmm. uh, my father he is sardinian he grew up on the island of sardinia very close-knit family hmm. in a in a small village in the middle of sardinia everyone knew each other everyone looked after each other yeah. um uh and there was that strong bond between them and then he left uh to live in the uk eventually um and this kind of migration of what i see now and seems to be natural you know you leave your family you go and live somewhere else you travel the world 
and there's this real strong sense of freedom and exploration yes but then and then but then you lose these very strong ties potentially to absolutely to people and, and here's the know. here's the kicker which is that people leave for a reason you know it is <laughs> community is not fun most of the time like it is stifling everyone knows your business you know everyone is irritating uh uh it, it's uh, you know i want to be careful that we're not hearkening back to some golden age you know especially <laughs> when community structures are oppressive you know i'm gay and it, it would have been so easy to have been born into a time where that would have been completely awful you know it's it's in part thanks to our breaking of those structures and those and those communities that people are able to live more freely so you know that the, these two are intention and i think we have kind of maybe the pendulum has now swung to the other side where perhaps we are all too free right we're able to consume and mm. travel and and live mostly however we want uh and and sod it you know if people don't like it um but with that comes comes this experience of disconnection and loneliness and so now we're looking looking to kind of be back in terms of deeper relationships. And I think it is very possible to build community on a different set of structures than the ones we've, we've intentionally let go of. Um, but, but it's important to acknowledge that, you know, one of my favorite people in the world is this wonderful 86, 87 year old woman, Sue Mostella, who lives in Toronto in a, and she's a nun. Uh, she's a sister of St. Joseph. And she always says to me, Oh, you know, she's lived in community for decades, right? Not, you know, like 60 years of her life have been spent in this, in this religious community. She's community is wonderful. And it's also terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's one of those things. Familiarity breeds contempt. Exactly. Exactly. Everyone too often, it can be a challenge, but I think there's something there around um now that we have so much freedom and and technology has enabled us to to not only break away um geographically from various locations but also free from organizations in terms of we are now working independently living independently traveling meeting lots of people we're hyper connected technologically yes but not necessarily in terms of relationships and especially and because so, oh sorry please continue no no Karen, you, you you had something there well, well just one one key insight that i've learned over the years is that relationships are held by structures and that's what institutions were they were they were they were structured ways of holding relationship now whether that was the elks or you know the um uh the 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 rotary club or the auxiliary you know uh, women's organization, whatever it was, um, or, or even a physical structure like a, a neighborhood, right? A physical place. Um, and I think exactly as you said, as we're becoming less and less trusting of institutions, we're also therefore less and less willing to allow ourselves being held in these structures that, that facilitate relationship. And so it's much more about, you know, your, your kind of network building, your personal relationships, um, and, and there's been a shift in, in terms of affiliation, you know, no one wants to affiliate with institutions anymore. Right. And you see this in the data in terms of membership organizations declining, uh, our, our, our willingness to affiliate with a religious identity, for example, 
but on the other hand, an increase in, in an affiliation with who we want to affiliate with. So the kind of the rise of the thought leader or the influencer who we follow, um, right? Or the mm. books that we read or the TED Talks that we watch or whatever it is. Um, so, so there's still affiliation, but it's moved from institutions to individuals. Um, and, and often that comes with a real decrease in those structures that facilitate and hold relationship. And then I get the sense, thinking of more from what you're talking about, what real community means. Mm. There's still this deep need to be known. Yeah. And I would interpret that in terms of being heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and from my experience of, of building what I tried to call a community of entrepreneurs, yeah. but I, I need to check myself now given your <laughs> your definition. Um, this sense of actually, I'm not doing, I'm not going through through this on my own. I'm not the only yeah. person yeah. dealing with these challenges and issues, and so I'm not, I'm not stupid. That's right. This is other people are having these, uh, yeah, problems in a sense. That relates to your thing. I th- well, this is how I relate to this. The, what you're talking about, also the mental well-being of people, how they because they're isolated, they don't necessarily realize that they're not the only people suffering. Absolutely, yeah. And there's so much shame and stigma and all sorts of you know deliciousness wrapped up in in that. Um, absolutely, you know, there's there's an immense power in in um, kind of narrating back to people their own experience. Um, this is something we really experienced when we when we published How We Gather. Um, that I, I don't think necessarily we were saying something extremely new or that people hadn't thought about, but perhaps we were just saying it in a way and and showing enough examples across different places that made people take their own experience seriously. It kind of validated um, what was happening in their own life, um, and and that that can be so. Um, you know, when we can see ourselves in someone else's story. There's nothing more powerful mm. than that. There's a, I think there's like a weight seems to shift off your shoulders yeah. when you realize you're not carrying it on your own. Yeah. Um, and that's, and so that, that takes an, you know, that takes a level of vulnerability. You need to be able to share that with other people. You Indeed. need to be able to gather in a place where you can actually have those conversations. And I have the impression that, that takes some level of leadership. You, <laughs> this doesn't necessarily happen just on its own spontaneously, or not everyone can do this. No, indeed. I don't know your experience of of how how communities gather. Do they gather around a person, or do they gather around a group, or yeah. is it a mix? Well, this this was one of the biggest revelations for me from from my time in the divinity school, because of course a divinity school at at its inception was created to train community leaders. Fair enough, they were church leaders, but th- but these were people who were being trained um, to to lead and often to build a community. And yes, that involved learning, you know, what words to say when you um, you know you lead a, a particular ritual of the Eucharist, for example. Um, but it also taught a lot uh, at its founding, and of course, even still now, about what are some of the things that people can gather around. Um, and and one of the things that you know really struck me in the research that we did with how we gather was looking at the, the communities that got together, for example, to work out together, right? To go to whether it's a running club or whether it's a spin class or whether it's a you know a, a, a something more intentional like a CrossFit. 
Um, or, or these kind of intense experiences like Spartan Race or Tough Mudder, right? These kind of uh, team-based mud-filled uh, uh, endurance races that that ostensibly you're there to work out, right? You're, you're there to get stronger. You're there to lose weight, to get fitter, whatever it is. But the actual outcome and often the reason why people stay is because the deeper relationships that they formed or the kind of sense of a breakthrough moment that they've had. They've reconnected with something innate about themselves that they'd forgotten, um, you know, during the rest of the day or the week or something. Um, so it's all like all they often say, you know, people come for the body, but they stay for the breakthrough. Um, and so uh, that, that, that sense of like, what do you gather around? Sometimes you kind of, if you're going to build a community and you say, hi, people come to my community, people are like, what is this cult? You know, like <laughs> there's just real hesitation. Um, and so instead, if you say, hey, let's make crafts together with your kids, or let's go and run through mud together and, you know, get physically fit. Like th- there's a much more, there's a greater willingness to trust an invitation when it's an activity that is, um, you know, somehow uh, more embodied or, or it's artistic and creative that, that, that there's mm. something it, it kind of in, in, in religious community, you might call it a third thing, right? Like we read a text to talk about the text. Sure. But actually the text is an excuse to talk about ourselves. That's why that mirror image is so important, right? Like we're, we're talking about these characters. We're talking about the plot. But we're actually talking about my divorce. We're actually talking about the fact mm. my mother is dying and it's giving me a safe invitational way to get there. Um, and it's giving me images, right? It's giving it's giving me language to make sense, to make meaning of what's happening in my life, um, and and that's what so much of religious community is. It's it's not people getting together in a room just talking about their feelings. It's it's observing a liturgical calendar and celebrating feast days, um, you know. And on some days we celebrate things that make us happy, and on other days we remember things that make us sad. Um, there are particular spiritual practices that we might do with our bodies, like pilgrimage or certain types of prayer. Um, there might be, um, you know, uh, a kind of serving others, justice work that we do together, um, which expands our understanding of, of, of an issue, not just by learning about it in the paper or not just kind of giving money to a political campaign or something, but that we're actually in relationship with people who are suffering. Um, so there's so much for me that was so vital um, even if you translate it to a very, very secular context, there was so much wisdom in these religious traditions and religious communities that that really were were essential to what makes a healthy community, um, and that that's really stayed with me. There's so there's so much in there that uh, my mind is buzzing, but there's uh, there's something around because you talk about the some of these are some more ancient communities or how community mm. was created around religion um and you talk about structure mm. uh, and you know from my i was brought up catholic and from my understanding mm. of not only the religious side of catholicism my father's very keen on history he talks about also the political side Absolutely. and the structure side of religion it was an amazing way to to galvanize mobilize and organize a large group of people for good and bad <laughs> for good and bad yeah. um and as i understand it in the past very much based on fear Absolutely. fear of what happens when you die yeah. and saving your soul now i feel like now you know we're some of us have been educated to a certain level we're less maybe 
believe less in this these either kind of dogmatic That's ways right. of looking at how the world works or who god is but we're still missing this sense of meaning and or we're still in search of this sense of meaning because we the way i see it we are in the western world for instance we are in the age of abundance mm. we have more than we need mm. and the thing is materially we can acquire everything which you know with hard work and sweat and t- we can get there but then we get there and say okay what next yeah, yeah. is this it what does this yeah. mean i have <laughs> is this it and i think that's where I believe, particularly, you know, where we, we work a lot with startups and entrepreneurs, and there's this thing. I was like, actually, there must be more to this than just the the hustle porn that I see, the trying to struggle <laughs> all the time. Yes. What am I? What am I doing this for? Other than a you know great Instagram picture with a Porsche or a nice house, but so there, there's something around um, people needing this sense of connection, needing to be seen. I'm really interested in the whole kind of being cared for and loved, mm. which I think might find some people might find a bit challenging. Mm. But also, but the, these things need to, these communities I feel need to be created and need to be led. And I was interested about, um, you know, your research around leaders, in this in that case, religious leaders being trained how to, as I understand it, hold a space, right. how to create structure for people to feel safe. Do you see this? I feel that this is becoming more can be should be more applicable in the modern age. People should and be I think it is trained to lead like yeah, this. absolutely. And 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 there's a um, I mean, in my language, what what we call it is, is really a spiritual leadership, right? If you're helping people engage questions of ultimate meaning, um, if you're accompanying people through major life transitions. Um, and, and now sometimes that can be done within an HR department, right? Sometimes that's done by friends. Mm. Sometimes that's done by a total stranger. You know, uh, uh, if you're out, you know, having some sort of adventure and you have this intense, amazing conversation with someone. Um, but yeah, what we noticed in a lot of these secular communities, there were essentially leaders doing spiritual leadership work. Um, and often they didn't have any of the kind of training or support that someone who led a religious congregation could expect from, you know, from their denomination, right? So if I'm a, a, a Methodist minister, for example, I have a bishop who I can turn to, or if I, um, you know, lead, lead a, a synagogue, I would have other clergy and, and scholars that I might turn to um, within the Jewish world. Um, and so we've really thought about, well, what are, what are the elements of, of spiritual leadership? And part of it is that you can only lead others as far as you've gone yourself, right? So that there's a real invitation for people in leadership to, to go deeper, right? To have, sure, to have experiences and to, um, you know, to, to see things and, and, and experience things that, that the rest of their community might not yet have done, but also really to kind of go inward and develop a discipline in their practices, right? Whether that's, going swimming every morning and, and, you know, returning to a favorite poem once a week, or whether it's journaling and, um, you know, wh- whatever, singing, wh- whatever it is, I'm totally open to whatever the practices are, but there is a, a need to kind of anchor yourself to fill up your own well before you can really be of service to others. Otherwise, very soon, and this sadly happens all too often, that there's a real quick cycle of burnout, um, that people create a community because they needed it themselves, Right. Like, uh, you know, the, the mm. dinner party is a great example. So the dinner party is an organization that brings people in their 20s and 30s together who've experienced significant loss over dinner. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, someone will, will open their doors and host, you know, six to eight strangers um, to, to just talk about life after loss, not just in the immediate weeks after grief, but even years later, what is it like now, you know, after your sister died or after your, or after your loved one died? Um, and this was set up by three, three women who each had lost a parent in their 20s and they just wanted a place where they could talk about it. Um, and very quickly it grew and there were hundreds of people hosting these kind of tables around the world. Um, and it is it, 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 like there comes a point where you realize like, oh gosh, my own needs are no longer met by this community. Now what I'm doing is just meeting other people's needs, which is wonderful. But then I need a place where my needs are met that is not here because it can get messy if it stays the same. There's some differentiation that's needed, right? Like but to, to, be, to be a leader in this way, to, be a, to kind of have that spiritual element of your leadership is also to be set apart from the congregation. Um, and that's, that's why the tradition of, of, of ordination appeared for, for at least in part, the idea that you are uh, for the community, but not of the community in the same way, right? That there's something different about you that, that for example, you know, that you might hold things in confidence in a way that you would not always, if you're just a member, um, that, that your needs are always put second to the needs of the community, all of that kind of thing. Um, but it does mean that you do need your own place whether that's, you know, a men's group or a group of colleagues of people who lead other communities. And that's, I think, the work you're doing, Carlos, is, you know, people who are all leading businesses and leading communities, you need a place where you can go yourself to, to be fed um, and, and to be with colleagues. So that, that seems very natural. Yeah, I, I, I like um, what you said uh, as, a, as a leader the people around you, whether it's your community or an organization, can only go as far as you've gone. Mm. I think that's how I understood you yeah. said. And uh, on an earlier podcast, I talked to someone. She said something about the law of the lid. Yes. <laughs> and as a leader, you are the yep. lid. <laughs> and no one can go beyond well, you. And if they do, they're not going to um, follow you anymore. They're going to find someone else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they, they will only grow as well. If they can't grow further than you, they'll want to grow somewhere else. So there's uh, there's a couple of way, ways I, I'm I'm curious about taking this conversation. Um, so I'll start with one, which is very purely selfish because it's it's kind of what myself and Lawrence struggle with, or and is a challenge with some of the people in our community. Is like you're very right. This community that we build is very much based or come from our own need. To, to surround ourselves with people who look at business and startup from a different lens that is not just purely money motivated, yeah. that is more about how can we create meaningful work um, as well as create sustainable businesses. Yeah. And so we create, you know, we, we create this space, we, we, we gather these people, we try and you know, find the rituals, understand the, the, um, the structures or try and develop these structures that, that help people connect. Yeah. But then there's this interesting thing around how you make that energetically and financially mm. sustainable. So on one hand, yeah. energetically, it, you know, I think you touched on it before. You know, we, myself and Lawrence, also need a space where we can share and and, and get and yeah. you know reflect with people who understand where we're at. But there's this other thing around how do you keep the lights on in the community yeah. center? And what does that mean? And I'm intrigued by your, you know, you talk about soul cycle and talk about tough mother. On these, on the surface, I see them as as places where you go and exercise and you pay right. to 
exercise with other people. But I don't know how 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 have you seen that tackled in other communities mm. and how that works. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is the big question that frankly there's no good answer yet for. Um, there are certainly some patterns that are worth noticing. And you, you just mentioned some of the fitness communities that, that in part were so visible to us because they are larger. Um, and, and that's because in our culture, having a hot body is something that we will pay for. <laughs> you know, there's, it, it, there's a cultural <laughs> currency around being fit and in shape that we are used to paying for. So, you know, to, to pay 20 bucks for a yoga class is, is not something that anyone would lift an eyelid at, you know, Soul cycle classes go, I think, like $35 for 45 minutes. I mean, it's, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but, but people are willing to pay for it. And so it's easier to build uh, kind of financially sustainable communities around fitness groups because people, people have something that it's okay to pay for. You know, culturally, no one's going to laugh at them um, and that they themselves feel like it has real value. Something like um, arts communities, justice communities, even like the dinner party that I mentioned that, you know, people find their best friends there, that they, they fall in love with people they meet there. Like there's all sorts of value that's created. But because it's a potluck, you're at someone's house, everyone's bringing their own food. It looks like this should be free. But of course it's not. It takes so much work to match people, to get the word out, to do all of the kind of support for hosts, to make sure they're confident and people feel like they can deal with difficult situations. Like there's, there's a lot of infrastructure behind an event like that, um, which costs money, but we're just not used to paying for it. And so it can be a real struggle. You know, I think the Jim Party at this point has maybe two, three staff um, uh, compared to something like, you know, CrossFit that has 15,000 affiliates around the world. Um, now that's comparing apples and oranges a little bit, but, 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 but it illustrates some of the challenge of articulating the value and to translate that into financial reward, frankly. Um, so for us, for example, with the podcast, um, with the Harry Potter podcast, um, there were a couple things that we were able to, to, to turn into kind of income streams. Um, one was to sell ads right in in the content that we were creating of the podcast um another was to sell tickets for live shows and do merch and things um but then we also invited people to to uh give donations and we've been we've been very blunt about <laughs> the need for those um and just the mm. fact that you know we can't do this we we made a commitment to ourselves we're like we'll do one season and and if it then becomes an income generator then then we'll do it again and so we at first we started doing a kind of yearly crowdfunder um, and then now we have a, a, a Patreon model. Um, so that it's been really interesting to, to notice that uh, potential with the podcast. While when we were running it as an in-person group, people, you know, we suggested a $10 donation for every session. The average donation was just over $4. And it, it just wasn't sustainable. We couldn't do it as an in-person thing. Now that we've built this kind of content and media stuff, now we're able to get people to come and do in-person things. But it, it was an interesting we had to we had to put it the other way around in order for people to really pay for it. Um, so all of that is to say, yes, this is super hard. Um, so kind of the the first takeaway is this: um, you know, have something of value that people recognize, and then have community as this kind of second layer of value that they that they get as a, as a benefit. Um, but the other thing is, you know, to some extent, uh, 
that there's, there's sometimes real hesitation about money and community. There's a shyness to to really say how much it takes to put it together and 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 how much it costs. Um, and and there's a lovely um, instinct that we all have that we want to make things accessible, which is beautiful. And looking at religion as my kind of scope of reference, uh, money and religion have always come together. <laughs> so to, to some extent, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be too afraid of 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 bringing money into our community work and and, and really articulating its value. Um, it's hard to do. Mm. It's hard to do, but. I think more and more we're going to recognize the value of community, especially as the healthcare industry starts to realize that for a lot of the major challenges it faces, um, whether that's the opioid crisis, whether that's um, mental uh, health challenges, or, ju- or just the most obvious ones of loneliness and social isolation, community is actually a really powerful public health strategy. Uh, and my hope is that in coming mm. years, we're going to be able to articulate that value um, through a healthcare lens um, on the work that people are already doing, you know, so that you can articulate, hey, that, you know, meetup of parents in the park on a Friday morning is actually, uh, you know, saving the National Health Service or, or your health insurer, whatever system you're in. It's actually saving us uh, a heavier expenditure later. And perhaps could we start to see tax breaks for community leaders? In the same way that religious communities have always had tax breaks, for example, could we start to see uh, uh, kind of new careers um, that are supported in part by larger companies who are willing to add to their list of benefits, not just, uh, you know, life insurance and and, and a pension, but actually that you will get access to a community coach, for example, who's going to help make sure that you're connected. Um, to to various communities. So I I can imagine that the structure of community and the way in which it becomes financially viable might might change in coming years to recognize that growing trend. Hmm. Well, so many things there. This sounds like there's... Yeah, I'm curious about the latter approach um, and how uh, the... I think... Well, the, the thing that springs to mind is like the... The alignment of agendas that needs mm-hmm. to happen there oh, to yeah. make sure that uh, the businesses, i.e., the sponsors of uh, these communities, are doing it for the authentic reasons. Um, there's something there I, I was really hit home as well as when you're paying for something like community, uh, or you're paying to be a part of some uh, some kind of community. It's how you justify it. Not only to yeah. yourself, but to also to yeah. your peers, and, and there's that sense of like, if I can say, "Oh yeah, yeah," you know, I'm I'm paying for this because I I paid to yeah. go to the gym, but in fact, what I'm really paying for is to so I can hang out yeah. with these people right. once a week in a sweaty right. room. But it doesn't feel as weird, or you don't feel as judged, or whatever the word maybe shame of, oh, I'm just giving money to these people because it makes me feel good, which, which, and as in a sense, is interesting. When it's like something like a, a donation model, when it's you, you purely, you know, that, that exchange of money is purely, I just believe in this thing and I want to mm-hmm. give them money. I don't want, there's no direct thing that I'm getting back. I just want them to continue doing mm-hmm. their work. Uh, as opposed to like the supper club experience where you're mm-hmm. talking about was actually I'm, I'm paying to bring my own food to someone's house and eat it. <laughs> And that, when you explain that to someone else, it's like, oh, <laughs> exactly. what are you doing? 
Well, rather than reframing it, I say, I'm paying to make sure this supper club always mm. exists. Mm. And some, I don't know, maybe there's oh, something like around that. reframing the the way we communicate why our communities are around rather than having to feel like we have to justify the the monetary value exchange that's yeah, happening. Absolutely. Um, so and the other thing that I wanted to I was interested in touching upon was um so the thing that's going through my mind is we have these more and more organizations are trying to call themselves purpose driven. Mm-hmm. And but they're still managed and run on a model of yeah. profit, which is fine, and there's nothing wrong around that, I think. But they're also trying to motivate and mot- mobilize their people based on this either this kind of purpose mm-hmm. motive, but still structuring them and mm-hmm. managing them based on this That's profit right. motive. And you have leaders who while they try and accept these new ways of self you know flat structures or whatever you call them trying to st- trying to lead in this way but i feel there's a connection between how they're trying to the new way of leadership and how communities have always mm-hmm. worked and how community leaders work and then there's the overlap i see on this kind of weird venn diagram is this idea of mm-hmm. purpose and i think meaning so I don't know if there's anything you could talk about in terms of like how how do we take this idea of community or how communities work and does that can that be used in the workplace? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean there's there's a few things just about that Venn diagram in general. Like one of the things I'm really convicted by is um a phrase Jean Vanier, who's a, a Canadian man who, who just died very recently in his 90s, but he he always says if a community is for itself only, it will die. Um, and so having that purpose is, and that purpose be bigger than your own community's well-being and flourishing, I think is really important. So whether it's something as simple as, you know, our community exists to make sure that this, you know, this playground is always safe or that this, this woodland is always, uh, you know, clean or, or uh, you know, it can be very kind of local in its mission, but it could also be like our community exists to, you um, you know, uh, uh, make sure that there is beauty uh, every uh, every three weeks. You know, we host a concert, Wh- whatever it is. Like there has to be some something that's beyond our own community that we're offering, that we're trying to change in the world, that we're trying to improve. That's that's a really su- a big sign of health uh, and and a sign of dysfunction if it's not there. So the first thing I'd say is there's a big overlap between those things. I, I think when we start talking about the workplace, it gets much more challenging and interesting because. On the one hand, you know, more and more of us are spending more and more time at work and more and more of us are finding our closest relationships in our colleagues, you know, (laughs) like these. And I have this myself. My dearest friends are the people I work with every day. And it's wonderful in some ways. You know, you really get that sense of of alignment and integration and and shared mission. and, And that's fantastic until uh, what happens when someone can fire someone else, but you're in the same community. Mm. You know, so you see this language of, of, of businesses being families, and I'm always very suspicious of that because in a family, you can't just fire one another. Um, and so <laughs> I, I think it's really important to, to challenge some of those frames or, 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 or language, you know, just the, the word choices that we use if there is a difference in hierarchy and a difference in power. Um, so 
you know, do I want the workplace to be a place of, of camaraderie and warmth and, and vulnerability and sharing? Absolutely. Do I think we should anchor the fullness of our community life in our workplace? No. Um, I, I really think it's important to have people outside with whom, you know, you, you can you can return, you know, wh- whether you've had the best day of your life or the worst day of your life, and they're not going to judge you. You know, no one's looking at your to-do list. <laughs> that, 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 that you are judged on mm. something that is more profound than just your economic outputs, right? Like, are these people in your work community still going to be there every day if suddenly you have a debilitating accident and you can't, you know, you, you can't perform in the way that you do right now? That, that's the kind of thing that a community is there for, right? That is, that's bigger than, than just a workplace, I think, or, or should be, should be different. So, um, and this is, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're in times where kind of things like we work and co-working spaces, of course, are everywhere because they're meeting a need of people who want to feel that sense of human connection, even if they're working on their own projects. And then there's, there's amazing co-working spaces that do really build, um, yeah, f- fantastic community life. And of course, there you're often dealing with much more than just one organization. So it's easier to kind of build that, build that sense of togetherness without the awkwardness of, of, of differences of rank. But I think within a single organization, um, I'm, always, I'm always a little suspicious, Carl. <laughs> hmm. Well, the word when you're talking about that was safety. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, do I feel safe should something unforeseen happen? And when there's um, so when when the the measure of success of a business is purely the bottom right. line, and when you perceive the illness or incapability of someone within that business as a liability right. that then affects that, then I yeah I I see where that how you how you create that sense of community family within an organization quite challenging i wonder though there's an organization in new zealand called inspire yes I don't know yeah they're wonderful them. and there's this kind of uh, and they they from what i understand I, I remember talking to or hearing a talk by a woman who's part of that called phoebe Tickell, and she talks well, from from the conversation with her, they, it sounds like they're at the bleeding Absolutely. edge of this kind of new way of working. So there's still a work in progress, lots of great things, but also lots of challenges. But I feel there's something there about this kind of collective yes. of people who come yes. together to do good work, who I get the feeling actually also care very for much, each other. Very much, very much. But, and, and are very transparent and, and as then, well. I think that's really important to mention. There's there's very little kind of opaqueness. There's a lot of openness, a lot mm. of conversation, a lot of inclusion inclusion in the processes that they have. So that you know, even though of course there's always power and there's always conflict, it's it's done as openly as possible. From from what I understand. Yeah. Uh, so the, oh, actually, that's interesting. The the word conflict. There. I'd like to um, come back to that. I think the, the, there's something around there. There sounds like this is a really strong intention of, of working together and caring about each other. There's something about how you manage the money, yes. so that should basically should things happen to people within the organisation, then they can be looked yes. after. And then there's something around the word conflict and how, and I think how. 
how honest people are about their motivations about being within the organization that can, I think, may address the idea of actually, it's not so much, oh, this person isn't pulling their weight, let's Mm. fire them. It's that person saying, actually, I don't think I'm contributing Mm. anymore to this organization, so Mm -hmm. I'll leave. Mm -hmm. And how you... No, no, I was going to say, yes, that is easier said than done. (laughs) Mm. No, but what... what 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 I love about Inspiral is they're really trying to challenge some of the assumptions that we have about how work happens and what work looks like. Um, And I I think they are Mm. amazing. You know, there's there's more and more organizations that are kind of uh, perhaps affiliations or or, um, collectives that kind of get together for certain projects and then disperse, but they're kind of still within the same pool of people of the same the same pool of relationships from which they can then build those teams to do specific projects, some of which might be paid and some of which might not be. Um, so I, I, mm. I and I think you're pointing to a need for us, you know, not just a kind of triple bottom line in terms of of, of the impact of what we do, um, you know, financially, socially, and environmentally, but maybe there's really a, a, a another bottom line that we need to add in here, which is, um, you know, really about kind of. Um, our, our relational connection, you know, like is, is the, is the work that we're doing contributing to um, the, the kind of rich fabric of relationship um, or, or, or taking that apart, not just on the outside world, but on the inside, like on our team. Um, that could be a whole interesting thought experiment. One of, one of the tools that we've really, as a, in my personal team together with Angie and, and my third colleague, Sue Phillips, um, we've really tried to take on this ancient practice of covenant um, where if you know a contract is you're going to say this and I'm going to pay you that much for you delivering that. A covenant is really a conversation about how are we going to be while we do this work together. Um, so you often, you know, if you're in a workshop, people might have like ground rules and things like that. Um, and then you write them up on a piece of paper and kind of never, never return to them. A, a covenant is really a living document, but you do that. You say, how do we want to be together? And then at the ev- we just did it today in our team meeting at the beginning of every team meeting, we read it out loud and we, we reflect, you know, where have we lived into it and where have we fallen short and do we need to edit or change anything about it? Um, and, and it's, it's a way of doing conflict productively because you get to bring up something that's challenging or icky or, you know, an ouch moment, whatever it is. Um, and, and you really get to practice being the way that you want to be together every week. Um, and, and so, you know, tools like that, which again, kind of comes from a a religious context originally, but in this case is done in a a more secular way. Uh, I I think are just so powerful, um, even for, you know, a, a, a workplace team. Um, that's trying to do some work together. I, so when you're talking, I was, I was intrigued. Um, firstly, I was trying to look around. We, uh, there's a piece of paper that myself and my co-founder, Lawrence, um, signed. We did a, a, a kind of a co-founders workshop. Uh, and one of the exercises was to create this agreement between ourselves and I remember writing it down I was wanting to get the exact words but it basically said along the lines of when we find out we're not having fun anymore Mm. we'll just quit Mm. and so it was nothing to do about the numbers the money it was like it's about okay how does this feel and if it doesn't feel how we want it to feel then we should just quit and that being now with you talking that way is like Having that in yes. black and white, having that very clearly stated, 
then that's something that you can then have a, a discussion around rather than someone's like, oh, that's can right. we ask anymore? That's I'm, right. I'm done. When actually, no, we had an agreement. We said, actually, if things weren't fun anymore. Yeah. We and that quit. means you have to be ready to hear someone to um, actually say that. You know, like you, you have to, if you're going to invite the conversation, you have to be ready for it to happen, um, which is not always easy. <laughs> yeah. And, no, and that's where the you know the and that's where I think some of this deeper work comes yeah. into play. And I was, um, I think, to finish off here, so I, I'm, I was running to loop back. There's this I. A lot of the work that you do seems to be based on some very ancient, old, spiritual, spiritually mm. based um, yeah. practices. Um. And I think we've gone through a journey, oh, the way I see it, we've gone through the journey in terms of work where there was this age of mechanization, mm. um, sort of scaling, abundance, um, digitization, and where everything is, has become very formulaic uh, and we're kind of quantifying our productivity um, in a very numeric way. But I think there are now we're in this age of disruption and things changing all the time. It's less about putting in a process and scaling up anymore. It's also we're needing to be creative and work more nimbly and with our minds, which also then requires us to, to generate more energy in terms of emotional energy to be able to create those creative thoughts. Yeah, you might call... And what I'm trying to link to is... That it's... Well, no, and, and, and Carlos, forgive me, I have to hop off in just a moment for, for on the hour. But I, I was going to say, no. it just you had that image. No it's, it, yes, it's about scaling wide, but also about kind of scaling deep. Uh, so that was just the... Mm, exactly. And I think that's it. I think this is where it's tying back. So some people might think spirituality, a bit of woo-woo. <laughs> but actually, if we're going to scale deep, there are some deeper questions that we need to ask ourselves. And that's where some of these community that's practices, right. these ancient community practices, looking back, remembering these things, is going to help us gather better as that's organizations right. as well as Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Carlos, thank you so much. I really let me let me say thank you for the work you're doing, uh, and that anyone listening to this, it, surely, if you if you got this far, you're doing some gathering work somewhere. So I, I appreciate I appreciate <laughs> the work that uh, that everyone's doing who's out there. And if if I may give a brief plug, I'll just say I, I write a little weekly uh, oh, yes, I, I write please. a little weekly newsletter on on these themes of community and uh, kind of modern spirituality and, and and culture change. So if you're interested in that, you can sign up at Casper TK dot com c-a-s-p-e-r dot uh, dot com brilliant i will stick those in the show notes well i, th I really appreciate thank your you time having thank me. you very much it was rich really, conversation yeah no it was great talking to you and learning Absolutely. from you we'll speak soon excellent thanks well, so you much take care. good night <laughs> bye 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 Thanks for listening to this Happy Startup School community podcast. If you want to find out more about what we do, then check out our website, www.thehappystartupschool.com. You'll find out more about our community, the courses that we offer, and also the conversations and content that we're trying to create to help you get clear 
about how to build a purposeful business without burning out. So if you're trying to balance the money and the meaning, creating impact and avoiding imposter syndrome, then join us and our group and tribe of like-minded, caring, compassionate and flawed entrepreneurs on this journey trying to work out how to make money, do good and be happy.